Radio. G'day everyone, welcome to The Journey. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you're having a great weekend wherever you are right around this beautiful country and that you're ready for a really interesting show this week. Now it's one in which Jude has lined up an interview with Dr. Ben Weicker, author, philosopher, Christian apologist and theologian. I'm primed to hear what Dr. Ben has to say, Jude. Me too, Dave. I had the great honour of meeting him when he came to Sydney a couple of weeks ago. And I tell you, I just knew I was standing in the presence of someone who was so committed to their faith and absolutely rock solid in understanding the truth of our faith. It was was a real pleasure to meet him. It was a real pleasure to talk with him. And in particular, talk about secularism and the relationship between science and religion. So that, well, everyone who walked away from his lecture, but certainly after interviewing him, just thought, man, aren't we blessed to have people of such intellect and such clear logic within our churches, within our Christian faith, who make the presentation of the gospel and and the things we believe in so credible. That's one we're all looking forward to. But that's not all we've got on the show today. While Dr. Weicker will be speaking in the middle of the show, we have all of our regulars primed to give us a weekly dose of inputs to help us embrace discipleship with Jesus. That's right, Dave. Sister Hilda will join us from the Abbey. Trish McCarthy will have some brilliant tips for living well according to the scriptures, hot on the heels of her return from a stint of evangelisation that she's been doing over in the South Pacific in her Milk and Honey segment. And one of our presenters that we always look forward to hearing, Sam Clear, Mm. our good mate who walked around the world for Christian unity. Unbelievable. Yeah, he'll join us with another lesson he learned in his walk, this time with a reflection on an experience he had in a remote village in South America. Really excited about this first part of the show, Dave, which is going to see the debut on the journey of Father Michael Fallon. Now, those of you who don't know Father Michael, well, I've got to tell you something. I walked in to ask him to contribute to the journey, and I looked at a bookshelf, which was full of all these massive books, all on different scriptures and every book of the Bible. Lo and behold, guess whose name was on the bottom of every single one of them? His. Oh, really? He's an amazing scripture scholar, and his work is used right around the world, particularly in preparing sermons and homilies, and we've got him here on the journey regularly. We're really lucky to have him. And, and he's got an amazing voice and an incredible spirit when you hear him speaking about the scriptures. Okay, strap yourselves in as we kick off with a reflection on the gospel reading for this Sunday with Father Michael Fallon, scripture scholar, author and theologian from Douglas Park with his reflection. So let's get into it. Whether you're listening in your car, via live streaming, or if you're tuning in via podcast, it's great to have you tuned in to this week's show. Faith, hope, love and life, you're with The Journey. Here's this week's Reflection on the Gospel. This week's Gospel comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is telling us how we should go about correcting others when their behaviour is endangering the unity of the church. The context is important. Verses 1 to 5 record Jesus' call for humility. If we correct someone from an assumed position of superiority, if we think that we're better than the other person, it's better for us to leave the correction to someone else. Our pride cannot but distort our judgment. Jesus goes on to warn against giving scandal. If people of goodwill, the people Jesus describes as the little ones who believe in me, are scandalized by the way in which we correct others, we can be sure there's something wrong with our way of going about it. Finally, Jesus speaks about the shepherd who goes off searching for the one stray sheep and he reminds us, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. Then the passage immediately following today's gospel is about forgiveness. 
this too provides the proper context in which to understand today's lesson. If we're going to correct people, we must be ready to forgive them when they apologize and show willingness to change their behavior. Jesus' suggestion is that if a problem arises between members of the Christian family, we should try to sort it out between ourselves with all humility and readiness to forgive. Normally, this would resolve the matter. However, sometimes we need to seek the help of others, and if that doesn't work, the matter should be taken to the community. Jesus assures his disciples that God's heart is always open to hear our plea for restoring communion and will be inspiring us to take whatever steps are needed to heal any divisions that occur among us. The passage ends with Jesus' promise, Where two or three meet in my name, I will be there with them. I'm Michael Fallon. More scripture study material, text or audio is available on my website, mbfallon.com. Faith, hope, love and life. This is The Journey. You're listening to The Journey with Dave and Dodsey from the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong on cradio.org.au. Here's Sister Hilda with Wisdom from the Abbey. Someone told me recently that she'd been running a camp for special needs high school children. It is apparently a yearly event, not without its fair share of trouble. The children come from various schools across a particular region in Australia and were a real mixed bag. Some were clearly from loving homes where they were totally supported and understood and there were others who were at the opposite end of the spectrum and then there was everyone else in between. Like all children, they came to the camp with their varying degrees of shyness and uncertainty and varying capabilities as well, physical, intellectual and emotional, which no doubt played themselves out in a whole range of behaviours. On the closing day of the camp, One 14-year-old girl, who was the only one from her school present, came up to the organiser and proudly introduced the other girl with her. Miss, she said, this is my friend. The two stood before the teacher, ten feet tall, and so proud of their mutual association. To tell you the truth, listeners, I found that all very moving. I thought of those two kids and the sadness and hope with which they would have parted. No doubt they exchanged email addresses or whatever kids do these days. I thought of how going home from that camp would have been different to coming to it. I thought of how the next day when each one went to their respective school, how differently each would have been and felt about themselves. How they would have walked into the playground upright thinking whether they could put words on it or not, I'm not on my own anymore. I have a friend. I'm a worthwhile person. I'm equal to everyone here. I have someone who's chosen to love me. I can tell so-and-so all about the things that happen and when other kids seem to leave me out, it won't matter so much because I too have a friend. I thought how much they would have been looking forward to meeting up again. And I hope they're still meeting up, whoever and wherever they are. You know, that's a bit the way I see the Zacchaeus story in the Gospel. A little man who was on his own, unclean in a number of ways, that didn't have anything to do with soap and water. And then one day, someone, with a capital S, claimed him as a friend. Someone wanted to come to his place. Someone wanted to know who he was. And that someone wanted equally to be known by Zacchaeus as well. 
I like to think that the pair talked late into the night too. The result was certainly brilliant. Salvation has come to this house, Jesus told us. But Jesus never told us what was said. It was a secret he kept. He only told us the results. May I state the obvious? You and I truly have such a friend. A God who never gets tired of hearing who we are, who never minds if we put it well or badly, who understands and will always not only keep our confidence, but treat it with the respect it deserves. Whatever your state of friendship with God is right now, why not sit down again before this day is out and claim him again, as he so wants to claim you? Truthfully, today, no matter what you think of yourself, Jesus has his arm around you and is telling whoever will listen, this is my friend. Welcome back. You're tuned to The Journey. We just heard from Sister Hilda Scott with her Wisdom from the Abbey, and this week giving us a really good story she called I've Got a Friend. Dave, I want to give a really big cheerio to all of the new listeners to this week's journey after they heard about the show at the Proclaim Conference a couple of weeks ago. We had so many people interested in the show. They think it's a wonderful thing that this content is going on to general Christian radio. It's a real sign of unity, and we've got lots and lots of people from all around the country. People come to this conference from everywhere, tuning into The Journey via podcast, and also trying to get the show running in their local region. I love hearing that, Jude. It's great to have our new listeners on board this week, whether live or via podcast or even streaming. And as we always say, if it's not playing in your region yet, give your local Christian radio station a call. Faith, hope, love and life. You're tuned to The Journey. You're listening to The Journey. Music, interviews and wisdom for living life to the full. Now it's time for Milk and Honey with Trish McCarthy. There is an author and priest who I particularly enjoy engaging with his work. John Powell has written many interesting insights, and one such is identifying the ways in which God seeks to enter our lives and touch our hearts. This includes our emotions, imagination, mind and will, memory and senses. Emotions can be a powerful and a gift from God, even the challenging ones. The more words we have to describe our emotions, the more open we are to experience and feel. Expand your emotional vocabulary. Imagination. This includes being able to visualise things, to hear what we imagine God to be saying in our hearts, to create and dream, and to be able to reflect on our life asking the right questions, and allowing life to question us. What might God be saying to you right now? What message of love are you hearing? Memory allows us to cultivate gratitude, to remember the times we have known love, mercy, forgiveness, and to bring that into our current circumstances. Our memories are uniquely our own and often shaped by our experience of life. And given negative memories can hold us in fear, they can also be healed to allow God's freedom and life to flow. Our mind and will work together. Our will is the capacity of our soul to move towards good or away from harm, recognised by our intellectual mind. It's our capacity of conscious choice, decision, desire, consent and intention. What is your will or desire? What is God's will, purpose or intent? Do they harmonise? Our senses open us up to the whole of human experience. Our external senses of taste, touch, smell, sound and sight, as well as our internal senses, such as intuition, allow us to interact most profoundly with God's created world and often work in harmony with each other. Although the numbers vary, it's suggested 70 to 80% of what we perceive as taste 
actually comes from our sense of smell. Ever wondered why your food doesn't taste as good when you have a cold? Something to think about in the colder months. Anyway, my encouragement for you this week is to take one of those five ports we've discussed and reflect and dissect it, one for each day of the working week, and note down what you discover. You're listening to The Journey, great Christian radio for the whole family. You're listening to The Journey on cradio.org.au. Welcome back to The Journey. I hope you're enjoying the show today, wherever you are, right around the country. Again, a big welcome to all of our new listeners in Port Macquarie, those tuning in down in Bendigo, in the Illawarra and Sydney, Gippsland, Albury, Wodonga. It's great to have you listening in wherever you are, either live through your local Christian radio, online or via podcast. Jude, we need to cut to the chase a bit here so we can get into that interview that you were lucky enough to get with Dr. Ben Weicker when he recently visited our shores. Yeah, we do, mate. It's a, it's a very long interview and we won't be able to put all of it on the show and I'd encourage people to go to podcasts of the show at www.radio.daw.org.au. It's fantastic from whatever church you're from to listen to this entire podcast. Okay, let's get into it. As you know, Jude, I love people who stretch my knowledge of faith and how to share it with others. And it sounds like Dr. Ben will do just that. He certainly will, mate. Let's go. Real pleasure to be speaking to Dr. Ben Weicker from the United States, who's come out to give a series of talks in Australia about secular liberalism. Dr. Ben, just to start with, would you mind defining for us what is secular liberalism and why do you think it's a threat to Western society as we know it? Okay, uh, all too quickly, but I think accurately, people have to understand that secular liberalism is something that started about 500 years ago, and it was specifically self-consciously designed to uh, reject Christianity and remove it from culture. So you have to understand the effect that we experience today, which we call secular, uh, wherein Christianity seems to be removed bit by bit by bit till there's not much left, is actually part of a long-standing plan, uh, set in motion uh, really five centuries ago. So interestingly enough, uh, what we have here with secularization is a return to a a kind of a paganism, uh, except under a new dress. Uh, And that can be seen by uh, the kinds of things that have popped up uh, in our culture uh, from the reacceptance of abortion uh, and infanticide um, and uh, euthanasia, which were all affirmed in the Roman pagan empire, uh, to the affirmation of homosexuality uh, and easy divorce whatever you want to put in there. Dr. Ben, I wonder if you could just summarize for us, what are some of the key differences between the two worldviews of secular liberalism and Christianity? The first and easiest place to begin is it was grounded on the assumption, simply put, that the soul doesn't exist, uh, that all is body, and there is nothing else but body. Uh, That itself was defined against Christianity's understanding that human beings are a union of both soul and body. It also was defined against uh, any uh, notion that there were angels or immaterial beings. Obviously, uh, any notion of God is a spirit. So you have uh, uh, the secularism that we're familiar with today rooted in um, an affirmation of materialism. On the opposite side of things is obviously Christianity, which affirms that human beings are made in the image of God, therefore they're a union of soul and body, therefore um, you can't just manipulate them as if they were a pile of chemicals. Uh, So there are moral restrictions and limits that are essential to the Christian argument uh, that say, this is a human being, you can't do this to it. Yes, you can kill a, a dog or a snake or a cow if you have to, Uh, But you can't just kill human beings. There's a difference there. 
one is murder, one is not. Uh, and uh, if we understand ourselves as not having souls, there is no limit on what can be done to us. Dr. Waikie, you spoke in your talks in Sydney about a couple of things. One, one phrase stuck in my mind, it was yuck points and the slippery slope that you perhaps describe us as being on because of that movement of those yuck points. It is a rather strange phrase. What happens is, is that people get used to certain uh, moral malformations and it no longer makes them go yuck. So what you can see in regard to the slippery slope is that the yuck points change. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, maybe 100 years ago, uh, Australians and Americans would both be horrified if they ever thought that would ever be debated in their congresses or parliaments whether we should or should not allow a baby to be delivered partially and have a, uh, a scissors stuck in the back of its head and its brain sucked out. In other words, partial birth abortion. They would have been beyond yuck. It would have been a moral horror the yuck points move. We'll get used to something else. And so you can't say, oh, we're protected because uh, everyone says yuck about this. Well, just think what everyone was saying yuck about 30 years ago. They'd look at us and just say yuck. So you can't use those for moral argument. Dr. Ben, you've written extensively about the relationship between religion, Christianity, and science, and have suggested really credibly in a number of books now that science has been hijacked by secularism. But in fact, in reality, if both faith and science, both on a search for truth, they should be coming to points of intersection, not points of, of moving away. Could you describe to us how science has been hijacked by secular thinking? We can understand this most clearly if we, if we again, we return to that foundation. What defines secularism? The rejection of Christianity. How did it reject Christianity? By defining everything in entirely materialistic terms. What kind of a science is it going to produce? It's going to produce a science that reduces everything to uh, materialistic terms, whatever it touches. And it will have to be materialistic terms that exclude God. Okay, so let's think of the obvious one. We believe that God created the universe out of love and according to his wisdom. How would you negate that? The universe is a purely material accident in which things come about by randomly banging against each other over billions of years. There is no purpose to it. There is no meaning to it. And human beings are one aspect of the accidental jostling of energy and matter over these millions of years. So notice that one is the negation of the other. Uh, in one, um, human beings are something that creation is designed for, uh, that, that human beings are in a way the culmination of creation. And they have their moral goal written into them. In the other one, uh, you've got uh, human beings as an accident uh, of forces that are themselves unintelligent and have no goal in mind. Uh, and so it would make sense for human beings to treat themselves that way. Now, the problem is that we've had a, a good 500 years where much of science has been defined by this philosophical materialism designed to destroy Christianity. And so it has hijacked the way that we understand things. So in effect, what you're saying to us is that science and faith do not have to be enemies. Absolutely. In fact, the, the notion that they're uh, enemies is actually a myth. Uh, it's, it's false history. If you go back in the history of science, at the foundation of science, uh, you find uh, Christianity. There's a reason for this, that you find Christianity at the foundation of science. We believe God created the universe. God created the universe wisely. He created the universe so that it could 
could be known by us human beings who are made in his image. So we would expect the universe to be an absolutely wonderful intellectual playground where we discover all these great surprises, these wonderful things that God has created. That's the Christian approach to science. There's not a contradiction. There is a contradiction if somebody says, oh, that's not science. Science only means one thing. Everything must be reduced to purely material, unintelligent causes, and that's the only thing that counts. Well, yeah, if you have that view, well, then you've excluded what science should mean, because you have to reduce everyone, including the scientists, to a bag of chemicals. And so science itself is undermined that way. You know, it makes actual nonsense of the activity of science if human beings don't know truth but in fact, what they call knowledge is just a, a, you know, a mere chemical reaction in their brains. Dr. Ben, I need you to talk to me about evolution. It's one of those questions that young people throw up continually. And, and when they go to university or when they're at schools or when they're being taught science, there seems to be this real conflict between what is the understanding of creation in, in religious terms and what the scientific world is saying. Can you talk to us how about evolution was hijacked? Yeah, this is a, a, a perfect example of what happens when you have uh, an, an ideology malform science. Uh, and this can actually be shown historically from just act, from reading about uh, the history of evolutionary theory. Darwin didn't discover evolution, and he didn't discover mindless, godless evolution. He was handed it as a, as a philosophical heir uh, to a, a radical, materialist, uh, secular thought that had been transforming Europe for three centuries already. It didn't have to happen that way. There were others who argued against Darwin, saying, you're uh, malforming science, and you refuse to look at the actual facts out there. So what you're really saying about Darwin is he started with an end in mind, and by starting with an end in mind... He's actually been quite unscientific. I am absolutely saying that. In fact, I wrote a book called The Darwin Myth in which I go to Darwin's own life and show you that. Darwin inherited it and he imposed it on the evidence. That's the important thing. He imposed it on the evidence and other scientists of equal or greater uh, caliber at the time completely disagreed with him on those points. So what would you say to people who, for whatever reason, continue to try to read Genesis and the stories of creation as some sort of an ancient science book? Um, where, where does the truth of Scripture lie in its relationship with science? Well, in some ways, it, it, it is an ancient science book in this sense. Um, it defines the way that God is related to creation. It may or may not fill in the details, but it's, but it's, it's immensely accurate in ways that have been surprising. I think the most surprising way is it with the Big Bang Theory, when all of a sudden we we found out that, scientists found out that, uh, the universe, in fact, did come out of nothing from a cause which was not material, not in space and time. Uh, And that seems a little odd, doesn't it? And it also sounds a little familiar, but no one could have predicted that. You couldn't have picked up Genesis and figured out those things. It's just that, oh my goodness, this accords so wonderfully with it, and it looks so familiar. Creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Where did I hear that before? That's basically what Big Bang Theory is saying. Um, Does that mean that we count out six days in a 24-hour? No, we don't have to do that. Uh, We interpret Scripture in relationship to the whole of the Bible and to uh, the church's understanding as developed over centuries of how to deal with it. This doesn't bother us. We still hold Scripture up as the great pillar, but you have to understand how to read it. We may not understand how to read it well, but one thing we know, and we stake everything on it, the same God who created the universe is the God who revealed himself in Scripture uh, and in the person of Christ himself. And so there cannot be a contradiction. There cannot And that means that if there is a contradiction, we have it wrong somewhere. We don't understand what Scripture is saying. 
we misunderstand what it is trying to convey. Uh, if science actually does contradict scripture and says that you're only a bag of chemicals that randomly came about, it's science that's wrong. And what that means is not that you have to deny science. It's that, no, this is wrong. You will find if you are a better scientist, this science will be overthrown. That's what it means. Uh, so we don't fear any science. What we fear is the malformation of science. Dr. Penn, thanks so much for your time and thank you very much for joining us on the journey. And thank you for having me. Well, Jude, that was an amazing interview. What an incredible man. What an amazing intellect. And how insightful was he about how Christians need to engage with our secular culture? Yeah, he didn't pull any punches, Dave, that's for sure. And he's very passionate about ensuring that Christianity has an impact on our world. And to do that, we need to be very, very conscious of the battle ring with secularism and ensuring that we're really overcoming the muddied waters that people have tried to create between science and religion. Time for a break. Faith. Hope, love and life. You're tuned to The Journey. You're listening to The Journey. Music, interviews and wisdom for living life to the full. You're listening to The Journey with Dave and Dodsey from the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong on cradio.org.au. Walking the Walk, here's Sam Clear. Hi, I'm Sam Clear for Walking the Walk. From 2006 to 2008, I walked 15,500 kilometres around the world for Christian unity. Having sold all I owned and setting off from the easternmost point of Brazil, I was focused on Christ's prayer from John 17, that all people would be united completely so that the world would see that the Father has loved us as he's loved the Son. I was focused on the obvious lack of unity amongst churches, but as I would learn in time, my idea of unity was lacking horribly in being complete unity, as Jesus had prayed for. After over 3,000 kilometres of walking and praying, I arrived in a small Panamanian village where no one would talk to me, except for one man, a 24-year-old named Adolfo. Adolfo wasn't born in that village, and so suffered the same fate I did for being an outsider, even though his wife was from that village. If you're not one of them, you're never one of them, he told me. That night, Adolfo went door-knocking to find me dinner, and he did the same for breakfast. A bread roll each. Over breakfast, he broke down crying and shared that the next morning he was leaving his wife and daughter to try and find work in Panama City, over 200 kilometres away. He hadn't told her yet that he was leaving. They had no money, he had no friends there, and no one would help them except for his elderly parents-in-law. That's where he'd secured the bread rolls from. Here's the kicker. Everyone in that village attended the same church. They agreed with each other theologically. They all followed Jesus. But there's no way that we could possibly say that they were united. Agreeing with each other is like having a solid skeletal system. But loving each other is like the flesh over the top. The division of churches, the broken bones of the body of Christ was what led me to begin the walk for unity. But the absence of flesh over those bones, unity and love, was the true scandal that I walked head on into. Unity is not some political game about what name we are under. It's about seeking truth together whilst carrying God's love to each other. Neither of those are an easy task. In fact, they aren't tasks so much as they are our lives. To draw each other into truth whilst extending ourselves in love to all we meet. 
may we be united in truth and in love for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. I'm Sam Clear for Walking the Walk. For more on the walk around the world for unity, go to walkforone.com. You're listening to The Journey, music, interviews and wisdom for living life to the full. Welcome back to The Journey. I'd now like to let our listeners know about a great event coming up in October. This October, men between 16 and 35 years of age are gathering from around Australia for the 10th Young Men of God National Conference, the largest gathering of young Catholic men in the country. The YMG 2014 conference is all about helping young men to realize the fullness of their potential. Now, the weekend includes an opportunity to meet inspiring Catholic men from around the nation. Also, thought-provoking and challenging talks. There'll be some live music, a time to retreat and reflect on your journey, and there'll be encouragement as well, which is so important as you walk in the faith. Now, the venue is the Tops Conference Centre. If you'd like to find out more, you can call Ben on 0439-999-196. Coming up on the journey, we've got our Smart Loving segment. This week, again with Byron Parola, not Byron and Francine, just Dr. Byron Parola. And he's going to give us a segment that he's called My Many Marriages to the Same Woman. Faith, hope, love and life. You're with The Journey. And now with their tips for vibrant marriages and family life, here's Byron and Francine Parola with Smart Loving. We all understand that our marriages go through their ups and downs, but we often don't appreciate that they also go through fundamental changes over the years. Hi, I'm Byron Parola from Smart Loving, and today I'm talking about having many marriages with the same person. Francine and I have come to realise that we've actually had several marriages already in our 26 years together. For example, there was the newlyweds marriage, where we were building a life together, living overseas, and redefining ourselves as a married couple. There was the new parents marriage, where we learned that the world no longer revolved around ourselves, and that sleeplessness uncovered some of our rougher edges. Then there was the big family marriage, where we lived a busy life, side by side, but often disconnected, as we took five children on the journey to adulthood. And with this realisation comes the knowledge that there are more marriages yet to come for the two of us. Our marriage is redefined not just by those more obvious external influences, such as children and work. It is just as much redefined by our own journeys of individual personal and spiritual maturation. These journeys impact the marriage precisely because the marriage is the outcome of two persons in an intimate connection. The problem is that most of the time, none of us are really thinking about this, and we certainly weren't until just recently. Nonetheless, it all plays out with or without our conscious awareness. When our transition is underway, it's unsettling. Suddenly the marriage is complicated and even painful. What was working no longer seems to work, and we are led to conclude that the marriage itself is actually struggling. When this is happening because one of us is going through a tough personal period of growth, such as the death of a parent, unemployment, illness, career change or midlife crisis, challenges in the marriage are both an additional and an unwelcome burden. Without the realisation that our marriage is simply transitioning to a new stage, we are unwittingly concluding that it's actually failing. And this is why thinking of having many marriages with the same person has been such a helpful mindset for us. While it may not make the transition any easier, We now realise what is happening and we can choose to embrace the growth. After all, marriage is meant to be a dangerous journey. I'm Byron Parola and with my wife Francine are co-authors of the Smart Loving series. For more relationship tips, visit smartloving.org. You're listening to The Journey, great Christian radio for the whole family. 
Welcome back to The Journey. That was another great input from Byron and Francine Parola. Want more tips? Go to smartloving.org.au. And if you want to access one of their marriage weekends, an in-service really for any marriage at any stage and any part of the relationship, know that it's covered by the new government contribution for relationship counselling. Just go to that Smart Loving website, smartloving.org.au and have a look at the many weekends that are on all around the place. You won't regret it. It's fantastic for your marriage. Brings us to the end of another week, Jude. Absolutely, mate. And thanks for listening into The Journey. I encourage you to give us some feedback on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook backslash The Journey Catholic Radio or go to radio.dow.org.au to listen to past podcasts of the show. And if the show isn't being played on your local Christian radio station and you're listening in via podcast or even live streaming... Why not give them a call? I'm sure they'd love to hear from you and get some input if you would like to have the journey playing on that station. Next week on the show, we'll be doing it all again. I can't wait, actually. Great music, interviews, and we're hearing some inputs from uh, some of the people from the Proclaim Conference as part of that, and of course, our awesome presenters. And if you like that interview today with Dr. Ben Weicker, or if you'd like to listen to it again and in its entirety, please go to radio.dow.org.au. Faith, hope, love and life. You've been listening to The Journey. The Journey is produced by Jude Hennessy and edited by Nicholas Weir from the Office of the Bishop in the Catholic Diocese of Wollongong. Radio.org.au